Hello. I'd like to introduce Samuel Shaw and David Cole, Spyware Adware. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Dave Korn with Semantic Security Response. This is uh, Samuel Shah with NetSquare. We're going to take you through spyware and adware, a discussion of the quest for consumer desktops and eyeballs and where it went wrong. So in this, I'm going to be handling the uh, business side of this and talking through the adware, spyware business, who the companies are, who the many players are behind this. I'm also going to be going through a little bit of the disputes that an organization like Symantec has. What are the popular complaints of adware companies Inspire, what do they say to an organization like Symantec? And what do we say back? I'll take us through a little bit of the lawsuits, the legislation, and then hand it off to Spyware, to uh, Sawmill, to talk through the technology elements of it. So we'll kind of split it between, between myself handling the business side and Samil handling the technical side. I'll slow down a little bit. Uh, what we'll do is uh, we'll plan on taking the full time today to talk through the slides. We've prepared a lot of material, and we'll handle questions afterwards at the table. So we'll be happy to take your questions after the presentation. So the first question is, how did we get in this mess? How did we get to the point that we are today with adware and with the, uh, the phenomenal costs that it's incurred in both organizations and consumers? It was noted that last year, Dell Computers, and there's a large number of com com consumer support issues, about 20% of their technical support calls were related to adware and spyware. So how did we get here? Well, first of all, it goes back to even before 1996, and it started out with the birth of affiliate marketing. Now, if you look on Amazon.com website, they would claim that they were the pioneers of this, that they were the first ones with an affiliate marketing program. But what we know is if you dig back a little further, actually the, the, the industry, which has been the source of many marketing innovations, has been the pornography or the adult entertainment industry who started out with a pay-per-click model whereby if you were, to refer, you were to refer a customer to their website, they would pay you for that click, for bringing that potential customer to the website. Shortly after this model was introduced, it was then abandoned due to widespread fraud and abuse amongst the different players. They then either dropped it entirely or converted over to a pay-per-customer acquisition model where you weren't paid for simply referring a customer, but for a customer actually purchasing the goods and making a transaction. Shortly thereafter, DoubleClick, which started up a, an advertising network and was serving at this point billions of ads a year, started to come under heat for the first use of tracking cookies. These are cookies that would track your activities online when you visited a website within their network. They later took this and merged with a company that had a large database of offline catalog transactions called Abacus. The union of Abacus and, the, and DoubleClick came under heavy scrutiny by many privacy advocates and was later investigated by the Federal Trade Commission. The concern here was that DoubleClick had stated all along that they were only tracking anonymous user behavior. 
and that it couldn't retract any personal, any personally identifiable information. The combination of Abacus with its personally identifiable information of catalog transactions with the double-click information that cataloged a user's actions across many websites was, was the crux of the concern. Now the information was personally identifiable and tied concretely to transactions. Shortly thereafter, the Gator Company was founded. Gator came on to be one of the most widely recognized, most widely noted adware companies. It was started in Redwood City, California, in the Silicon Valley. However, while Gator came on to be one of the most widely recognized ad adware programs, one of the two of the first were Conducent TimeSync and R8 Radiate. These were two of the most initially popular and visible adware programs that came out of the gates. Shortly thereafter, some of the now larger, more mainstream players, similar to Gator, which is now called Claria, came to the market. These include organizations like 180 Solutions, as well as Direct Revenue. As a result of the activities and the issues that had already occurred on consumer desktops and inside organizations, the first freeware anti-spyro programs came out in the year 2000. These include GRC's opt-out and two European-based freeware programs, SpyBot and LavaSoft AdWare. At the same time, Kazaa, which was an adware-supported peer-to-peer program, started to catch hold. It became very popular. Through Kazaa, Gator Corporation gained about 70% of its distribution. Its distribution today is estimated at around 40 million desktops. So Kazaa was the source of many adware installations, notably a large portion of those were Claria's applications, including things like Precision Time and a, a wallpaper application, the Gator eWallet, and so on. Kazaa eventually fell into disuse due to the, the wide-scale impact it had on people who installed the peer-to-peer -peer application. They instead moved to different peer-to-peer -peer applications which didn't install adware, spyware, or at least didn't install as much. Some of the first let, some of the first legal activity centered around Comet Systems. Comet Systems had a bundling relationship with RealPlayer. So they also bundled their adware program or spyware program and got the distribution out through a widely accepted and known and trusted application, the RealPlayer. This in turn, this in turn resulted in many of the first heavy spyware debates and heavy privacy concerns regarding the mainstream application and adware spyware. Over the course of the next 18 months, a large number of new applications came out. And what they were using were techniques, again, which were popularized partially through the adult entertainment industry. These are things such as persistent retry. Persistent retry is aggressively 
going back and prompting you many times if you really don't want to install the application. So let's say if you clicked on the little X and tried to destroy the window, collapse the window, it would come back up and ask you again and again and again until out of frustration you click yes. ActiveX drive-by installations also became very popular. People were used to, at this point, installing helper objects to better view a website. The Adware Inspire vendors played upon this, this trust in order to get you to install things which they said would help you better view the website. The reality is, the programs would get on your machine and track your activity and display ads one after another. Here's where we saw some of the first federal activity and real legislative action around spyware was with an injunction which was brought forth, which was requested by Washington Post, New York Times, and 16 other organizations. This injunction blocked Gator Claria from popping up banner ads over the top of the banner ads that were already on the site. So what this looked like to a user is it would visit the Washington Post, and they would see a banner ad there, but it wouldn't be the banner ad the Washington Post had paid for them to see, or the advertiser had paid for them to see on the Washington Post, but it would be an ad that would basically be placed there by Gator. The Washington Post, many others, brought these communications, tipped off the interactive advertising board, and then got the, uh, got the injunction for Clary to stop. This injunction within the past year was recently repealed, and Gator is able to actually do this today. Cool Web Search, the first signs of Cool Web Search, were in around May of 2003. Cool Web Search, or CWS, was one of the most prolific and aggressive families of adware. It had heavy ties to the pornography industry and displaying adult advertisements, heavily tracking user behavior, and being extremely difficult to remove. Cool Web Search went on to have about 40 plus different variants in the Cool Web Search family. This includes things like IE Feats, About Blank, Data Notary, as many, many names. At this point, Claria, which had been renamed from Gator in preparation of their initial public offering on the U.S. stock market, filed their S-1, which is a formal filing in advance of doing an initial public offering. What this revealed is that they had made, at this point, a little over $90 million in revenues in 2003. They did this with only 190 employees. Now, one of the measurements of the success or the efficiency of, a, of any technology startup or even beyond technology startups is how much revenue per employee you have. A reasonably good number is about a quarter of a million or $250,000 per employee. This number put Gator at about 476,000 were about double the normal successful rate of a good startup. Very successful organization if you base it off of revenue alone.
April of 2004, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission initiated the first round of discussions on adware and spyware to explore the topic. Afterwards, they started to take legal action and prosecute, successfully sued Sizing Media and prosecuted them. And that's a case I'll talk through in more detail later. They proceeded from this point to take heavy action primarily against rogue anti-spyware programs as well as some of the worst players in the market. One eighty solutions, which again I showed the birth of it back in '99. At this point, their image had been very sullied by the bad activities of a program, which their initial program was called Encase. The Encase program had very aggressive tracking, had a serious impact on Internet Explorer and system performance, and at the same time, this bad activity was coming to light. 180 Solutions was also aggressively going after advertisers, signing up distributors, signing up affiliates. In an attempt to try and go legitimate and become mainstream, they bought one of the worst distributors in a public show that they wanted to clean up their act and win their advertisers. They also took a challenge issued by Esther Dyson. Esther Dyson's a popular pundit in the U.S on the information technology scene. She had challenged all adware companies to issue a notification to their customers and ask them whether or not they wanted this, this technology, this adware, on their machine and allow them to remove it. 180 Solutions, to their credit, took them up on this challenge. And they claimed that not many of the people, their customers, actually removed them. In a final note, 180 Solutions also sued some of the distributors, some of their affiliates, which they claim violated their affiliate rules. Again, an attempt to make a very public show that they're trying to be legitimate. Also, as we move into 2005, the first industry working group was a consortium of anti-spyware technology vendors. This group included not only anti-spyware vendors, but also controversial adware companies such as 180 Solutions. As the two sides bickered and couldn't come agreement, couldn't come to terms across the two of them, the two parties, the organization collapsed. It was replaced shortly thereafter by a group led by the Center for Democracy and Technology in the U.S., which is called the Anti-Spyware Coalition. In 2005, we also saw adware vendors exploring new distribution mediums beyond install via web browser, which had been the most popular install method to date. One example of this is embedding adware into peer-to-peer -peer, peer -peer content. So what this might look like is you download a popular TV show or music program, and when you click on it, and go to play it, it not only plays that movie or that, or that music file, but also installs adware. And direct revenue as well as media metrics were seen to have their programs installed by content delivered through file sharing programs. Also in 2005, the links between malicious code 
spyware, and crime had become increasingly clear. There was a large case brought to public consciousness that showed uh, spyware being linked to identity theft, with a large number of user identities being stored on a centralized server and then being harvested from there and resold on the black market. Malware has also been noted to help either help the install of adware and spyware or install it itself. One of the most obvious examples of this is the case of Zotob. Zotob, the Zotob authors claimed very clearly that their goal was to make money. And they did this not by installing adware, but by lowering the security settings in Internet Explorer such that adware could be easily installed by the spyware and adware vendors. So that's a, a brief timeline of the adware and spyware and how we got to where we are today. Here are some, here's a breakdown of some of the major players. The more mainstream players are the larger ones that tend to be more legitimate. By legitimate, what we mean by this is they, they go through things like uh, extended measures to get consent from the user. So they might have a brief and understandable end user licensing agreement, such as Claria. They might have very clear attribution in their ads showing where the ads come from, such as Wenyu. Wenyu has also taken a step to where they do all profiling of user behavior on the client side. So the data is not sent back to Wenyu, but rather the ads are matched to the user's behavior on the desktop itself. Very different from most adware vendors. 180 Solutions has also been very mainstream. Some people say that they've made success in improving their image. Others point to the fact that they still make a lot of money off of the adware software that's already been installed illegitimately. As we move through the other the rest of the companies here, we see decreasing levels of attribution of consent. We see increasing stealth behavior, such as that's used by direct revenue. Solomon is going to take us through the example of a better internet, which is an application which is which has been distributed by direct revenue in the past. It also includes cool web search and commercial surveillance software such as 123 PC Spy. So what does your average adware company look like? Well, there's a small number of adware companies that are in the mainstream that are visible, that are actively engaging with organizations like Symantec, advertisers, and so forth. The vast majority of them were founded in the last four to six years. They make anywhere from 50 to 200 million a year. Most, I'd say, would probably make from 50 to 100 million. Their goals are to get as many eyeballs as possible, to get installed on as many desktops as they can. From there, the goal is to get a deep understanding of user behavior. They contend that the banner ad model, which went out there from day one, is a flop. It's ineffective. The goal of DoubleClick to track activity within their ad network doesn't go far enough, they would claim. 
that their ability to track your behavior on any website and deeply understand what you want and what your online behavior is, such as web browsing, gives them an unprecedented capability to deliver the ads that you want to your desktop. They, in turn, through their installs, intend to drive purchases, so they get paid as customers purchase actual items through the ads, or just to show as many ads as possible. It's important to note that initially the model was much less sophisticated. It was simply to show ads. Now, more more mainstream players, which are trying to push for more legitimate installs, are focusing on customer acquisitions. So they are paid per purchase as opposed to just per every ad that they show. They're funded by mainstream venture capital firms many times. This includes Greylock, U.S. Venture Partners, many others. The total investment into the adware market at this point is around 100, $139 million. So it's a substantial amount of money is being spent by U.S. investors, technology investors, and marketing investors into funding the adware space. Interestingly enough, this even includes one venture capital firm which has funded both an adware vendor as well as an anti-spyware vendor. So there's a couple out there that are playing both sides. There's also the advertisers who are behind this are somewhat surprising. They're organizations which you know by name. Sometimes these organizations know that their ads are being displayed through adware. Other times they have no clue how they got there. How does that happen? We'll explain that in a moment here. Here's just a quick glance at the, at the Symantec's top 10 adware. This is a list that's been compiled by what our customers are sending to us, what they're sending to us and saying, this is suspicious or this is something I'm concerned about. And what you, what's important to note is that these constitute the vast majority of what's out there. So a small number of adware vendors and adware programs are actually the vast majority of what we see. So how does the model work? It starts out with the advertisers. They design the ads themselves, which are intended to be displayed through a website or through an AdWare program. And the idea there is that they pay per click permissions, meaning if you purchase an item, they will pay the AdWare company or they'll pay the AdWare company or the organization that hosted the ad a commission for that purchase. That could be anywhere from 10 to 50 percent, depending upon the deal that's been cut. Again, this can also be done on pay per per, per show, per display of the ad, but today that's less common. The adware company, in this very simplified model, then takes the ad, displays it through the software, and gets paid and pays commissions to the downstream parties on install. So they'll pay anywhere from one cent to five cent, all the way up to maybe twenty cents for someone to install their program and get a new a new position on a consumer desktop. And the last step in this overly simplified model is the distributor 
which might be a peer-to-peer -peer vendor, a peer-to-peer -peer software company. It might be an instant messaging software company. Uh, it might also be a website, then in turn bundles the adware or offers up the adware on their website, which ends up on the consumer's desktop or inside an organization. This model we show here is grossly oversimplified, and what the real model looks like is quite a bit different. In practice, this is more of what it looks like. A complex web of relationships and interactions which may not be intended to decrease accountability, but that's certainly the result. So it starts out, and you have a product or a service vendor creating an ad at the very top. And that might be handed off to a large adware vendor, or maybe to an ad agency, which, in, which will in turn place the ads. A large adware vendor might go to a small adware vendor, they might go to an advertising broker, or the agency might. And then it ends up in the hands of website owners, many times several website owners, or tens or hundreds. It ends up in the hands of software makers. Again, maybe a peer-to-peer -peer software application would be a very common example. Or an instant messaging application that might be very popular with consumers. Ultimately, it ends up on the desktops of end users. So the attempt to trace this back and determine how an ad actually got shown on a user machine, how it got from all the way up to the top here down to the consumer is very difficult. And it impedes the success of organizations like the Federal Trade Commission or a well-meaning advertiser to trace it back and figure out exactly how their ad was shown on one desktop. Now one thing we do know from our conversations with adware companies is that it is possible to police this. It's not impossible to find out the accountability. Difficult at times, but not impossible. One area where the policing can take place is at the adware companies themselves. In our conversations with the adware company, one thing they told us is that it's obvious for them when a distributor is installing extremely aggressively or installing by ActiveX drive-by, or installing, installing through a vulnerability exploit even. The way that they can tell is they see a huge spike in the number of installs that the distributor is asking them to pay for. So if they normally have 10,000 installs per month, and they see a spike up to 1 million installs, they know that something's happened there. And then the dilemma for them is do they take that money from the distributor and in turn resell that in terms of eyeballs to advertisers, or do they punish that distributor and dig into the activity? And what we've seen historically is that very few of the adware companies have been pursuing have been pursuing these these rogue distributors. So here's one example. The original complaint for this was made by, for the, for, by the Center for Democracy and Technology. That's where the slide comes from. And this is an example of a company called Seismic Media, which has been successfully prosecuted by the Federal Trade Commission. What happened is companies like J.P. Morgan Chase, Disney, and many other large brands had hired a company to place ads for them.
or several companies to place ads for them. And those companies placed it on probably legitimate websites and with different advertising brokers. But ultimately, it ended up through, a, again, a complex web of relationships over at a company called Seismic Media. What Seismic Media did is they worked with a front company called Opt-in Trade. And the dialogue on the next page shows us a little bit about what happened here. Seismic Media would take adware programs, such as those from Sidor, 180 Solutions, and, and found out a way, basically, to use Internet Explorer vulnerabilities to install adware programs without any user interaction. So what you saw was this gentleman here from Seismic Media contacted Optin Trade and said, hey, I found a way to install through infected ads. So the ad would use something like the IE Frames exploit, exploit vulnerable browsers, install the adware, and they would do it over the weekend. They would start on Friday, and they would finish on Sunday. They did that because they knew that the small niche websites that they were distributing through didn't have anyone working and taking user complaints over the weekend. Then what would happen is on Monday, Optin Trade, who actually did the ad placement with the website, they would receive the complaints from the website. One of the websites was called Kings of Chaos. It was a sports betting website. The sports betting website on Friday or before was shown a clean ad, no infections. Over the weekend, it was swapped out with the infecting ad from Seismic Media, fronted by Optin Trade. And then on Monday, Optin Trade, as is described here, would basically say, sorry, these guys were unethical. First time we used them, we'll never use them again. Thus, Seismic Media stayed at an arm's length from any of these sites, unaccountable and guilty, but never touched. What they would also do, insult to injury, is they would turn around and try and sell spy deleter and mail wiper to the user. They would charge a large amount of money and would do things like open the user's CD-ROM tray and close it, then display an ad on their machine selling them a program which would stop that from happening. Again, they were successfully prosecuted. Uh, actually, all the players here, Mail Wiper, Spy Deleter, Side Media, and Optin Trade were all prosecuted successfully by the Federal Trade Commission in the U.S. Money or jail? <laughs> Money, primarily. So what do we, we've talked about adware. Who are the spyware companies? Who are these people? Well, in general, they're smaller. We're talking about less revenues and certainly less resources. 50 people or less to take a stab at it. The official backing and affiliations and big name brands that you see on the adware side are generally not here on the spyware side. We're talking about two types of applications. One of those is surveillance software, keyloggers. These are applications which are marketed by these companies for tracking your children, tracking your spouse, 
tracking your employees and what they're doing online and in, in, via instant messaging, email, or other popular communication applications. The second type are free tools that basically perform very aggressive monitoring. What do we mean by aggressive monitoring? This is not only tracking your online behavior, but it's also tying that to personally identifiable information, such as a social security number or an email address. So it's going far beyond the tracking that we see with a simple adware program. At the most extreme edges of spyware, we're walking a very fine line with out-and-out -out malicious code. This line was crossed by a program called LoverSpy. LoverSpy was created by a gentleman living in San Diego, California, who was recently indicted for a program that basically allowed a jealous boyfriend, girlfriend, jealous spouse to create an, an email postcard. They would send, they could create this postcard, send it, then to the, you know, the girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, they would receive the postcard. When they clicked on it, it would install the Lover Spy application. The Lover Spy application would then monitor their chat room sessions, all the email they sent, what they did online, all for the price of $89. So the gentleman who is uh, who was indicted for this is now on the run, has not been caught, and had about a thousand customers for this application, several of which have also been indicted. Here's a list of Symantec's latest top ten from our Internet Security Threat Report delivered in September, and what you see here is largely spyware programs that are doing aggressive tracking. Free tools that also happen to track, by design or by accident, personally identifiable information, with one exception. iSpyNow, number nine, is a commercial keylogger surveillance tool, which is available for purchase. Here's just a quick glance at what some of the commercial surveillance tools look like. And these are taken straight off of their websites for how they market these applications. So they show things such as monitoring chat sessions. They highlight the ability to send logs, log reports via email to the person who installed it on the machine. The most aggressive of these, which we would consider classic spyware, run on the machine in complete stealth with no indication that they're actually operating on the machine itself. So what does Symantec see? In the course of our regular testing of spyware and adware websites, peer-to-peer -peer bundles, software bundles, we go out and we take a look at what they install on the machine and we gauge internally how well we do at removing them and, and detecting them. What we see when we do these tests is that the vast majority of what's out there, of, what's, of what users are being presented with, 
and what's being installed in their machine, with or without their consent, is adware programs. And in general, we're seeing the players that were in the middle of the spectrum, the folks who are playing in the shadows. So the mainstream players, we increasingly do not see. So you could use, you might infer from this that the mainstream players have cleaned up and policed effectively some of their distribution. What we don't see, what we see next the most of, but a much smaller percentage, is spyware. Most of these are, again, are your commercial um, are are not heavy key loggers or things that are um, that are targeted at crime. But these are tools that do aggressive monitoring of personally identifiable information. Trojans are uncommon. Neither are dialers. We also see downloaders, which pull down other programs, as well as out and out hacking tools. So. Within semantic security response, we have the dubious pleasure of handling the disputes from the adware companies. These are things when they, this is when they approach us and say, you're detecting us as adware, but we're not adware. You're detecting us as spyware, but we're certainly not spyware. So what do they say to us? What are their complaints? What do they try and, and do? to get themselves dropped from detection. That's their ultimate goal. They don't want to, typically they don't want to be moved from high risk to medium risk to low risk. They don't want semantic to detect them anymore. So what do they say and what do we say back? The conversations almost always start with the emotional appeal. You're killing my business. Because you're detecting me, I can't continue. It's been devastating. The way that we respond to this is, okay, prove it. Where's the impact? Do you have numbers to back this up? Do you have customer comments? Where's the data? We're not out to crush people's business, but if you've got a valid argument, let's hear it. I can think of only one in one dispute where someone actually produced data that was somewhat compelling to prove that there was an impact, a legitimate impact on the business. The conversation always progresses from there. That's about 80% of the first conversation we might have with one of these companies. Another tact, a little more savvy that they take, is we agree with you, Symantec. Adware, people will want to remove it from their machines, or might want to remove it. However, we're not adware. Instead, we're ad-supported software. You see, there's a difference. To which we say, by our definition, by consumers' definitions, by the anti-spiral consortium definition, you're adware. We make no distinction between the two. If you deliver ads to the desktop, particularly pop-up ads, and you track behavior, you're adware. The third one is more interesting. Adware and spyware vendors have an unfortunate tendency to embed interesting things into an end user licensing agreement. Now in general, almost any user that I know, including myself, fails to read an end user license agreement. This fact was 
partially proven by an organization which ran a contest. The contest was they embedded a statement inside an end user license agreement on the fifth page which said if you read this and send your request to us we'll pay you a thousand dollars. It took them a month to get one taker. So carry this out and what you see in the adware and spyware end user license agreements are comical restrictions on the user claiming things like you can't remove our application unless you use our uninstaller. On one of the most aggressive and somewhat entertaining instances, the adware purveyor, thinking ahead, said we reserve the right to delete other adware programs from your machine because they knew if they removed the other adware programs there'd be less ads on the desktop and it'd be less likely for the end user to remove them as well. Now they'll come to us and they'll say you're breaking the EULA with our customer. In general this conversation doesn't go very far. The key comes down to What's the user's expectation? The user has a right to remove things that they don't understand, that they didn't consent to, and that they don't want from their machine. The ability of the adware or spyware company to enforce a 75-page end-user license agreement, which is presented in a 50 by 50 pixel window, is pretty tentative. Again, a conversation that's interesting but doesn't go very far. The next one is everyone thinks we're a virus because you're detecting us, Symantec. And this is a challenge that all the antivirus players have that have integrated anti-spyware capabilities into their product. Now there's a little bit there's a little bit of legitimacy to this, but this here, there is a tendency for consumers to not pay attention and to think that everything that Symantec would detect is surely a virus and something they'd never want on their machine. As a result of this, we've gone through great pains to distinguish between security risks, which you might but probably don't want, but at least need to have a choice of removing or keeping, and malicious code, which is something which you certainly don't want on your machine under any circumstances. So this one here, because of the strength of a brand like Symantec or McAfee or Computer Associates, the onus is on us to make it clear what's a potentially unwanted application and what's clearly malicious code. This one here is, an, is another kind of interesting argument. Most of the adware companies out there, particularly ones with instant messaging applications or uh, wallpaper or screensavers, have not only free adware versions of the software, but have paid versions that, that have no ads in them. So a common complaint by them is, you're not just detecting our freeware application, which does have ads, but you're also detecting our paid software. Now the reality is, how these guys are driving very little revenue through their paid product. They exist nearly exclusively to deliver ads to the user. 
But while the claim is largely bogus, why it doesn't have a lot of impact on their revenue, and in general they're not nearly as concerned about with this as just getting detection drop, we, we agree to work with them to not detect their paid software which doesn't serve ads. The reality of implementing that has turned out to be very difficult. The vast, the large number of changes that need to take place are on the server side for the adware company. The software application that would deliver or not deliver the ads, the paid versus the freeware, there's literally no difference in the executable itself, but the changes are on the server side for the adware company. So while we're happy to work with them to not detect the paid version, implementing that has been another story. The next complaint is, Symantec, you're just picking on me. Clearly we did something to you, you don't like us. What about Acme Corp, my competitor? What about these guys who's just like us that you don't detect? Frankly, there's a wide world of adware and spyware out there. No one detects it all. At this point, the response to this is, our customers complain about you. We found you because you're causing a problem. The conversation isn't about Acme Corp. The conversation is about you. Sooner or later, if Acme Corp is causing our customers a problem, or if we find them and think they need to be added, we'll add them. But let's talk about you. And lastly, a lot of these guys make analogies to Google or Yahoo and say, what's being done with the Google toolbar, the Yahoo toolbar, is exactly what we're doing. Same level of tracking. You're really just picking on the little guys. It's important to note that for a large time, we had an open dispute with Amazon.com, their Alexa toolbar division. So the complaint that we're just picking on the little guys is openly refuted by the large disputes we've had with big players like Amazon. That dispute has since been resolved, but at the end of the day, the reality is the level of consent and the user understanding that they have with the Google or Yahoo toolbar is very different from your standard adware or spyware toolbar, which has been bundled inside a piece of software. They didn't know how it got on their machine. They don't know exactly what it's doing. Very different from downloading the Yahoo or the Google toolbar directly from their website. So what happens when adware goes legal? What type of legal activity has there been out in this space? Well, it started in the beginning. I mentioned this before with copyright infringement claim from the Washington Post, USA Today, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, where they got a successful injunction, which was later lifted, against Claria for pop-ups. Claria has been no stranger to lawsuits themselves. They sued PC Pit Stop. PC Pit Stop used to be a website focused on tuning up your, your PC, making it run faster and better. In order to deal with the volume of complaints on the spyware side, they've become almost exclusively an anti-spyware website. 
they focused heavily on Claria. They had a corner of their website which was focused just on Gator because there were so many installs of the Gator applications. Claria sued them for unfair business, trade libel, interference. Many of the, of the claims are going to be the same across all the lawsuits from the AdWord purveyors to organizations like PC Pitstop. It was later settled. Gator also proactively sued the Interactive Advertising Bureau. The Interactive Advertising Bureau had gone out and issued a press release claiming that what Claria was doing was borderline illegal, wrong, and they recommended things such as an investigation into their behavior. Claria, again, not being shy to lawsuits, proactively sued them, sued the IAB before the IAB could sue them, and claimed things like trade libel, defamation, and so forth. Collins Law has a history of class action lawsuits against the, ad, the, adware, uh, the adware industry. The most recent of these is 180 Solutions. Now, they're a fairly small law firm. And there's a gentleman named David Fish who's been behind several of these. And they actually are claiming a very strong claim of computer fraud and abuse against 180 Solutions due to their very aggressive distribution practices, like bundling, ActiveX installs, install by vulnerability exploit. 180 Solutions, again, as a part of their image makeover, has been out there and has been suing their rogue distributors, the affiliates which they believe have been violating their rules and installing by exploit and by ActiveX. And they're claiming things like willful, willful interference. Two of the most recent of these has been Aztec marketing and ABC search. So what's happening at the legislative level across the globe with, with AdWare and spyware? Well, first of all, back in the, back in the U.S., we have two states that already have laws in place, California and Utah. We have 28 total different state bills that are in progress. At a federal level, there's five, and it's fully expected that there will be federal, U.S. federal spyware legislation enacted this year. There's differences across the different bills. We expect them to be resolved when Cong uh, by Congress and for us to have a signed U.S. federal legislation this year governing spyware, or rather over the course of the next 12 months. Brazil. Brazil has been the home of a lot of cybercrime, particularly targeted at their banks, phishing attacks, Trojans, password stealers. As a result, Brazil today has no specific legislation on spyware, but they have a major bill that is uh, that covers cybercrime internet application, which would include very aggressive spyware in the upper chamber of Congress. It's passed the lower, so it's on its way, but it's not in place yet. Over in Europe, what are we seeing? Not a ton of, of official activity yet, but there is a bill in the Netherlands to deal with the use of dialers and spyware. 
dialers much more of an issue um, for both legitimate there's there's uh, popular legitimate use of dialers in Europe where they're wanted applications for things like micropayments, but there's also a lot more abuse of dialers there as well. Hence, Netherlands not just focusing on spyware but also dialer applications. What do we see in Asia? Well, Korea, home to to date the best broadband access in the world in Seoul has also been a hotbed of spam and a fair amount of adware and spyware. They've also had a very heavy hand with adware purveyors. A gentleman this year was sentenced to uh, up to five years for spreading uh, spot. Basically, they uh, have defined spyware which has been a struggle inside the U.S. to get an agreement on that. And they've set penalties for those who create or spread spyware for up to five years in prisons and 50 million and uh, 50,000 50, U.S. Now, having said that, even without this in place, what they've done is they've taken strong action against an AdWord purveyor and actually thrown him in jail. So they have been uh, they've been one to actually act outside of the U.S. Where the Federal Trade Commission has been very active in recent uh, over the course of the past 18 to 24 months, Korea has taken hard action versus an adware purveyor. And then lastly, in Australia, they've introduced a bill uh, for fining companies up to 10,000 Australian dollars for spreading spyware. Not a big penalty, but a penalty nonetheless. And at this point, I'm going to hand it off to uh, Sawmill to handle the technical side. Uh, thank you, Dave. Uh, I'm going to now take over the technical side. So what's happening is Dave gave you a high-level aircraft view, and I'm going to give you the subterranean view. So we're going to go crashing into the ground. Um, we looked at some of the common, um, common phenomena. I'm sure you're all familiar with most of the taxonomy. We can like, spend hours uh, debating the difference between spyware or snoopware or keyloggers or all this stuff. But uh, let me not waste too much time on that. Instead, I will take you through how it works inside. We're going to take two case studies. We're going to take the case study of a program called Hotbar. And we're going to take the case study of a program called A Better Internet. And let's see how they work from the inside. Going to Hotbar. Um, what Hotbar is, it's a, it's an enhancer. It's an experience enhancer. It says, gives you many things like fancy toolbars for Internet Explorer and Outlook. Gives you skins, smileys, uh, weather widgets that sit and tell you the daily weather, current weather, little desktop games. But inside, what it ends up doing is, it ends up hijacking your browser searches. It hijacks URLs, displays advertisements targeting your internet behavior. It hooks into your internet explorer instance and pretty much hangs on there for dear life. Um, the advertisements displayed are of various kinds. 
they can be either pop-unders, browser frames, uh, overlaid ads using the HTML, toolbar buttons, whatnot. Um, Hotbar does claim to be ad-supported software, well, adware, as, as Dave said, there's no distinction. There's some level of uh, social engineering that's fooling the user when it comes to Hotbar's installation. They try to make the installation easy for the user. Don't read too much. Don't pay attention to warnings. Just click OK. So this is what uh, the Hotbar install page looks like. It claims that you can add smiling yellow faces to our emails, beautify them, dress them up with roses and colored backgrounds and fluffy bunnies. Um, what it doesn't tell you is what it really does inside. When you try to install Hotbar, it gives you a nice one, two, three easy steps to install. This is the screenshot of installation. You can see on the help page it says click run. Don't read anything else, just click run. So what's the user going to do for a file called hd2s.exe? Click run. When you click run, um, especially Windows XP Service Pack 2 shows you a warning saying this is unsigned software. And to the average user, what the hell is unsigned software? Says who is the publisher? The publisher name is very carefully crafted. In Hotbar, when they got the certificate or when they made their dummy certificate, got their publisher name written as Hotbar.com, a Microsoft certified partner dealing with 100% virus free software. So when you see that on the screen, you're going to quickly take you know, how many seconds do you spend on such a screen? One, two, five, ten, I don't know. You just click, okay, you buzz through the screen. You notice anything strange in this installation screen? I mean, it, it tells you soon you'll be able to enjoy colorful emails, enhanced browser, weather reporting tool, wow papers, not wallpapers, you're redefining wallpapers, wow papers. It says you can enable, by default it leaves these buttons on, you can enable the hotbar keyword search in Internet Explorer, uh, you can choose from their free ad supported version or go for the paid version. And it also has a default install of install shopper reports, free price comparison tool. The strange thing about the screen is there's no cancel button and there's no little X on the corner. All you can do is read this and click next. Once it's installed, it takes effect. You can see the top uh, screen, there's, there's a toolbar added with buttons being added on the hotbar toolbar. On the lower end, you see a little desktop weather widget. It tells you the weather, rain, sun or shine. Now if you look inside, if you look at the things that it has installed into Internet Explorer, you see it installs three pieces of itself, ActiveX Control, Toolbar, Browser Helper Object. It also installs components from Shopper Reports, Browser Extensions, and another Browser Helper Object. So this is what it throws at the back end into your browser. How does it affect your behavior? Let's see. Uh, here's an example. I just went to Google search to search for 
Ford, just the keyword, Ford cars. The moment I did that, Google of course showed me the Ford Motor Company on the home page. Hotbar decided to split my Internet Explorer into two frames, showed me an ad below with two state auctions, cheap cars, etc. It also added buttons to its toolbar automatically. Toolbar says Ford, auto insurance, auto finance, leasing. And if you leave your mouse inactive for a while, all of a sudden it starts flashing layered ads on top of your page. So the moment I left my mouse and I was trying to read through it, suddenly my Google logo is overshadowed by another ad supplied by Shopper Reports or Hotbar or whoever it's done that. Hotbar also displays pop-under advertisements. I was searching for the keyword mobile for mobile phones and all of a sudden I notice another window pop up behind my explorer window. When I brought it to the foreground, this is the stuff it had behind. Search results mobile and the search results have got nothing to do with mobile phones as you can see. But these are their paid sponsors so this is how they must be making their money. If you search using the hotbar search thing, you again get the results master in your browser with the same sponsored results. Toolbars keep on changing. In general, hotbar I've seen has, because of the way it hooks into IE, dramatically slows down your internet experience and it pretty much grinds all web activity to near complete halt at times. Hotbar also does an interesting thing, it hijacks the 404 not found page. So you go to a site which reports HTTP 404 page not found, instead of displaying that error message, it displays its own. It takes you to a site called pagenotfound.net and on that site there's some ads and for all the pages that were even not found, it sort of tries to show you an impression and gain some money out of that. So that was a little bit about what you see on the screen with tools like Hotbar, you know, how they force ads using different mechanisms, what are the different ways that they hook in to your Internet Explorer. What we're going to do now is look at a stealthier program, slightly more aggressive, and actually way more aggressive, way below in the shady regions as Dave mentioned. We're going to look at a tool called a better internet and see how exactly private private information is disclosed and collected by such tools. What is better internet? It uh, sort of turbo adware. It tries to do everything that it can. It hooks into many many different areas of your system. You know, registries, browser helper objects. And I think it's even a layered service provider. It has multiple installation vectors. It employs stealth techniques. Unlike Hotbar, you never see the presence of a better internet anywhere on your screen. There's no user interface. There's no visual giveaways that this thing is running. And because it hooks into multiple places, it's incredibly hard to clean up. It does not clearly disclose its intentions. Um, it does make heavy use of social engineering for installation and continued presence. It's extremely hard to remove. 
And if you try to kill the process, a new process will be spawned with a different name, with a different registry entry. So, and they're all random. So you may not even be successful in detecting them using signature-based techniques. It's definitely very, very aggressive in nature. If you go to the website, now it's Better Internet is now called Best Offer Networks. It uh, it shows you uh, some of the some of the bundled software that it comes with. Loop the screen washer or eliminate spam or smiley smiley source or ID theft radar. These are the programs that carry the Better Internet spyware component with it. I tried to install one of them. Uh, Loop the screen washer. You know, when you install it, it gives your typical download or run options. Let's see. Um, so, when I click on run or don't run, once I install uh, Loop the screen washer and I start browsing the web, all of a sudden a different process starts up. I notice it on my taskbar saying here's the best offers. It's popped under my page. I don't visually see it. But it's there. It's it's monitoring everything I do. In this this is a screenshot. I actually flip back. I actually tried to search for my own name somewhere and it brought up my some of the search results in Google. I was actually pretty pretty distressed to find out that I've slipped to number two and not still reigning Google champion for the keyword Soumya. But it decided that it wants to show me an ad from Indian Friend Finder. Why? Because it detected my IP address as that from the Indian IP space. Did not uh, realize that I was, I'm married now, but up to last year this would have somewhat worked, maybe. <laughs> right. So these are the things that are displayed contextual pop-up ads. Let's see what goes on behind the scenes. I did a packet trace on Better Internet, tried to capture a whole lot of information that is being sent back. And you know, scratch the surface analysis provided many interesting things. Here's a post. Here's a request that goes from Better Internet components to some site. Now, what is being posted? Let's just try to make sense of this stuff. It sends many things. It, it first transmits what URL I am on, google.co.in. It tries to also send back the country code I am coming from, India. It indicates what Aurora instance ID is installed on my computer. Aurora is the is the engine that keeps pulling and keeps transmitting information and keeps pulling ads. So the Aurora instant ID is identified by this long number. It also sends the browser helper object name as aurora.exe. That's the browser helper object that's installed. Um, it sends my computer name, uh, host name, the Windows system name that I gave it. It's called expletive. My computer's name is expletive. It sends the host name back as well. It also sends the Windows serial number. This PI5527 is my system's Windows serial number. It also sends its own user agent, 
what was used to send this HTTP message. Its user agent is the Aurora to whatever host. What activity is being performed? It's something called routine check-in. So every now and then, Aurora keeps on checking in with the mothership, saying, what should I do next? Please send me the next command. The next screenshot is that when Aurora goes and polls for an advertisement. So the, this one was just a routine check. From time to time, it will just keep sending this info. The advertisement request looks like this. What you see is the ad servlet engine being invoked, the current URL context that it was invoked from, google.co.in, the domain name, country name, the transponder ID, that is the Aurora instance ID. So whoever is tracking the ads now knows it is I who have come to see these ads because of the same transponder ID. How do, I, how do they know it is I? Well, now they have my host name and Windows serial number amongst many other things. So they keep on tracking personally identifiable information. Some other system data is also transmitted. Now what a better internet uh, does, is not only does it show you advertisements, it also allows for involuntary install of other third-party software. See, so you're, you're writing some software that you want to be installed on desktops. Well, better internet will automatically do it for you. There is an installer. There's a thin installer bundled in with a better internet. And from time to time, it will go out, pull in new programs for giving you a better internet experience or enhancing your system as is written in their agreements and have them installed on your system. So here's a, here's a packet capture of the installer making a call out to the mothership saying for this computer name expletive the total disk space is 2 gigabytes and it has 800 megabytes free what is the msxml interpreter installed on the system so a lot of my system disk data and installed data is given out and the new programs are installed in looking at the registry you notice there's one registry key that it creates called Aurora with whole lot of information. Almost the interesting thing is here is the Aurora instance ID which uniquely identifies my installation of Aurora and is used to track, is used to index and track every activity that I do. Uniquely identify me. So the packet traces, here's a serial number that appears. It's the same serial number as my computer's Windows serial number. If you go to the if you go look at the Windows current version run registry key for startup items, you notice that random names are created with random executable names. Every time you kill this, it will create another random entry name with another random executable name. It pretty much doesn't want to die. The only way is if you kill the process, it responds. If you look into the Internet Explorer hooks, you notice there's a browser helper object called Search Assistant OC. It says that the publisher is Microsoft Corporation. It's actually not. It's just written as Microsoft Corp. It's genuinely not there. 
And from time to time, it will pop up messages like this. I was actually digging through the registry and uh, looking at uh, looking at information that it installs. But it popped up a message saying, if your computer has errors in the registry database, it could cause unpredictable behavior. Would you like to install this program called ErrorSafe 2005 to check your computer for free? Even if you press cancel, it will still go ahead and install it. And the only thing it will do is allow you to click OK. And it says this file has been digitally signed, certified 100% free of viruses and spyware. It's not really a signature, it's just a dialog box. And here's ErrorSafe in action. Whether you like it or not, it runs, it installs and runs. Error safe. Now a little bit about removal techniques. Um, let me first confess this is uh, the only proven technological removal technique is you know, make sure you keep up to date with spider removers on the same lines as antivirus cleaners. Most of the AV, large AV vendors provide you with spyware removers. Problem is they work on a signature based approach. So the removers are always one step behind the latest spyware that's out there. Now unless exposure is reduced and IE7 or Windows Vista claim, uh, I mean they, they actually try and aim to reduce attack exposure. There's other stuff like browser protection toolbars that you can install, plugins, use third-party spyware checkers like Spybot, Spy Sweeper, or Foxy. Try using Firefox, I mean try just dropping IE for the time being, that's one of the things that I preach to my friends. So with say all these techniques and eventually reduced attack surface, we're going to see lesser of technological attacks but more of psychological attacks. It's actually not so much about technical invasion as the attacks are made on our own common sense and productivity. We don't want to see annoying dialog boxes. We want to click OK and get rid of it. We, although we voluntarily in, install these programs, we do not know what they exactly do. Their claims of intentions are not very clear. We bombarded with a whole lot of jargon and big words, so we choose to accept them or remove them. And users still want changing wallpapers, they still want smileys, they want decorated emails with fluffy bunnies. You know, how many of you have mobile phones with things hanging or stickers stuck on them or different ringtones? You all want the personal experience and this thing's going to come with it. So what do we do uh, there? Um, I don't know. Looking ahead, actually, let me hand it to Dave. He's going to conclude uh, his piece, and I'll ch I may chime in if need be. Okay, we've got a short period of time to wrap up, so I'm going to talk a little more quickly. So, what do we see happening as we look ahead? Well. 
we see the shadows that are shrouding some of the poor players, the misbehaving players today, starting to disappear. And the actions of the Adware players being called in and brought front and center for people to see that. So the legitimate players, we think, are going to become even more visible. Your mainstream players like Claria, Wenyu, 180 Solutions. We think that the model that could evolve here would be one that maybe isn't necessarily desired ads, but ads that are tolerated. Ads that come when you're about ready to buy a Caribbean cruise, and by tracking behavior, they offer you something that's cheaper than that, than what you would have already paid. It might be something like a product placement. Claria is moved to a model where they're no longer doing pop-up advertisements, but they're doing integrated search results through something called Behavior Link. When you thinks by providing more interesting, entertaining ads, that that'll provide value, and people will want that, or at least tolerate it. The illegitimate players, we believe, are going to end up looking a lot like malicious code, or might even be malware. They'll generally be in, com in countries or spread across countries that have weak cybercrime laws or no cybercrime laws. Note that Cool Web Search already does this today. Already, the winds of change are blowing. Uh, Major League Baseball in the U.S. has condemned adware and removed all placements. Other companies have done the same. When you has already claimed that due to their, their behavior, their, their vastly improved behavior with their Save Now program, this year their revenues, which were growing year after year, much like Claria's, will be flat. They expect no revenue growth due to the changes to their behavior. And again, as I mentioned, Claria is moving away from pop-up ads, which are universally disliked. However, this is not going to happen quickly. These types of decisions, these types of improvements, cost these companies real money. When they're used to having year-over-year -year growth over 100%, to hit them at the bottom line, especially with serious venture capital and investors behind them, that's not going to happen quickly. They've got serious issues to sort out. From chaos to order, we believe that the large number of vendors that are out there today and the confusion for customers as to which anti-spyware product to use or which antivirus product which might have any spyware in it is largely going to consolidate. The antivirus players, we believe, have caught up to the anti-spyware pure plays, even though they started a little later. We personally think we're one step ahead of the, of the spyware players. <laughs> but uh, the pure plays, we believe, are either going to play in the uh, they're either going to play in the, in the antivirus and in the, in the rest of the space and come out with full consumer suites for security, or they'll die or they'll be acquired. This, again, will not happen quickly, but it will happen over time. Market standardization is also something we expect to see in terms of testing, in terms of definitions, which we've already seen emerge this year through the Antispiral Coalition, dispute standards, you name it. And the vast number of small reviewers that are out there today touting themselves as trusted entities are likely to be swept away or replaced by organizations that have been in the antivirus space for some time, West Coast Labs, ICSA, you name it. And finally, the large number of rogue anti-spyware programs that have been out there 
which are noted at over 200 today, are likely to go away. These are the guys who have benefited from the chaos that's out there. They've been heavily targeted by the Federal Trade Commission, who's made an example out of spyware assassin, spy killer, spy blast, who's playing on 9-11, uh, clearly. We think that they'll either continue to be prosecuted and moved out of the market, or they'll go away. So looking ahead, there's a few things off the slides that we also believe are likely to happen. As Samuel mentioned before, with IE7, Windows Vista, and just users getting a little smarter and other technologies coming out that prevent adware through the browser, one of the things we expect to see out of the, that it's not on the slide is a move to other venues, such as peer-to-peer. -peer. We saw the first hints of this this year with embedding into the Family Guy program. That's something we expect to see going forward in addition to uh, a lot of other developments. So we see a very young market and a chaotic market starting to mature. And with that, we'll uh, wrap up, and we'd be happy to take your questions outside. Thank you.